Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. So, good evening. It's nice to be here. I'd like to start tonight with a Zen koan uh, story from the early Zen tradition about the Pang family. And it goes like this. Uh, Mr. Pang was selling bamboo baskets with his daughter. And on the way to the market, he was coming down a hill and he tripped and fell and all the baskets uh, flew away from him and he fell to the ground. And as she saw him falling to the ground, uh, his daughter Ling Zhao threw herself to the ground. And when she landed on the ground, Mr. Pang said to his daughter, what are you doing? And she said, I saw you fall, so I'm helping. And the father said, uh, it's good nobody was looking. So I want to unpack this story for the next hour. When the Buddha died several uh, decades after his death, there was a meeting called the First Council where the monastics got together and determined what the rules would be for the community. Uh, should they handle money, for example, and what should the diet be, and various other uh, rules. And they came up with a list called the Vinaya, hundreds of rules about what to do and how to structure a community in the wake of the Buddha's death. And of course, when any community meets, there are always people who are excluded or who just don't make it to the meeting or didn't hear about the meeting. Uh, and anyways, uh, almost a century after the first council, there was a second council. And in the second council, a lot of different kind of people showed up. Uh, people more like you and like me. People who were merchants, artists, householders, people with families, uh, monks, and also nuns. And in that second council, they developed a new spirit of practice that they called bodhisattva practice. And the basic idea of bodhisattva practice, uh, bodhi means uh, to awaken, and sattva is a being. So bodhisattva is not just a being who is awakening, but a being who is awakening other beings, and a being who is awakened by other beings. And the basic premise of bodhisattva practice 
is that if all of us are interconnected, if all of us are deeply uh, drenched with one another, then how can you be free? If other people are imprisoned, if other people are in pain, if other people haven't healed from their wounds, how can you be free? So it's almost like you're on this path towards freedom and then you get to the door and you're ready to go through and you've put your hand on the door and then suddenly you look back and you realize, oh, there's all these other people. There are all these other people. And this is the spirit of uh, bodhisattva practice. So Mr. Pang and his daughter are on their way to the market selling bamboo baskets. This was a traditional Chinese family. Uh, you can imagine them uh, going to the market every weekend. During the day they made bamboo baskets and utensils and on the weekends they sold them at the market. Mr. Pang and his daughter were inseparable. They really loved each other. And um, one thing that's interesting about this story is that uh, Ling Xiao, his daughter, was actually a Zen master in her own right. And that's an important detail. So she's doing bodhisattva practice. She's made this vow to include other people in her own practice of awakening. Sometimes I think some of us, we forget this vow because uh, we come into practice, we're just suffering so much and we think, oh my God, how can I think about anybody else? My hamstrings are so tight. <laughs> or, as I did when I was a younger person, is um, you hear stories about uh, doing epic silent retreats so that you can get enlightened, which is a kind of young man's fantasy, I think. And then you start to realize that these skills you learn of doing incredible backbending or getting flexible hamstrings or even being able to sit long periods in stillness don't necessarily give you the tools for being able to heal uh, relationships. Sorry. <laughs> Some of you have amazing Instagram accounts, I know you, so I, I'm sorry. Your back bends are so good. <laughs> But imagine this, imagine that you see this scene and they're heading into the market and Ling Zhao sees her father fall and just leaps and lands right next to him. Is it a literal story? It doesn't matter. Is it a metaphor? It doesn't matter. The point is, is that she responds to the situation without flinching. She responds to the situation compassionately without needing a badge. She just responds uh, creatively to what's happening. And the other side of the story is her father allows it. Her father takes it in. He receives her help. But he also gets a little self-conscious. It's good nobody was looking. And I like that part of the story because I think it can be a little bit idealistic, you know? And then there's just this move in it that I think all of us feel when somebody wants to help us, which is a little bit embarrassed or maybe ashamed. Not ashamed in, in a deep way, but just ashamed in a kind of, as a, like a passing emotion. 
And when you take in somebody's support, it really changes how you view the world. And it changes how you view yourself. Because most of the time when we fall down, we immediately are at odds with ourselves. And when you're at odds with yourself, you can't even see another person's help, let alone ask for it, let alone receive it. I also like this story <clears throat> because it's not just a story about an individual having an awakening experience. It's a story about relational enlightenment, if you will. Enlightening one another. It's a story about a family waking each other up. We don't tend to think of our families this way. Right. Or maybe there's one member in your family that you idealize as someone who's mentored you or inspired you. But every member of our family has woken us up. The people who've healed us, the people who've hurt us, the people we can easily forgive, the people we can't forgive. They're all teaching us all the time. And we're always waking up together, if you will. So Ling Xiao jumps and comes to the same level as her <coughs> dad. If you ever hang out with kids, if you ever go to a party this time of year and there's lots of kids around, has anybody done this yet? Okay, not yet. Soon, you're going to be at parties and there's going to be kids around, okay? And if you walk up to a kid and you're standing and you go and reach and go to shake their hand and say, what's your name? They're probably not going to speak to you, right? We've all had this experience. But if you kneel down on one knee and you get to the same eye level as the other kid, then um, they'll connect with you. And my experience of this is they will then follow you around for the rest of the party. And in the uh, tradition of uh, Dharma practice, this is called non-duality. Non-duality has been uh, perverted by academics and uh, new age thinkers, I think. But the basic idea of non-duality is to be in an activity where there is not a separate you standing behind you talking to yourself about what you're doing. So compassionate action is non-dual action. Non-duality is wholehearted activity. When you act with your whole heart, your whole heart is in the intention of the activity. This is called non-dual activity. And it's impermanent. And it doesn't guarantee that it'll work. If it doesn't work, you try something else. But the point is, you're fully in the activity. Ling Zhao sees her father falling. And he says, what are you doing? Well, I saw you fall. So I'm helping. This is non-dual activity. That's my understanding. I used to think non-dual uh, states were some transcendent thing one experiences. So I'm here to puncture that idea. 
and tie together the fact that uh, teachings about non-duality and being fully present in one's experience. Fully present. Fully present meaning there isn't another you having the experience. Is compassionate activity. It's wholehearted activity. So let's imagine that in every single situation, no matter what it is, intimacy is at the base. <coughs> intimacy is at the base of every situation. And we make all kinds of abstractions and we have all kinds of habits that are mostly deep and explicit or unconscious memory that cover over the intimacy that's in every moment. And over time, we forget that there's connection in every moment. And my understanding of yoga practice, both in movement and in stillness, is that we're just uncovering the inherent intimacy that's there already. So intimacy and awakening are synonymous. They're exactly the same thing. They're twins. And again, intimacy is not something you're trying to pull out of a situation or pull out of a relationship or even achieve in a relationship. It's already there. It's the ground. It's already there before you start splitting things up. And the first way of recovering this connection is to not abandon the situation that you're in and not abandon yourself. And the way I think about this most of the time is to practice not separating from yourself. To use the breath to titrate what you're experiencing, to use community to help you hold and metabolize what's arising in your life, but to learn the skill of not separating from your experience. And then you learn a valuable skill of being able to hold that for other people too. So not fleeing from yourself. So this suggests that a work of a bodhisattva, or the work of a bodhisattva, an awakening being, is that if somebody falls to the ground, we fall with them. If your kids need attention and they're preoccupied, you give them your attention. My son was upset last night because I had to come here to Portland and I'm going to be away for 10 days. He's just starting to get this idea of me being away. So he really wanted to sleep with me, but he has uh, a flu. So I said, fine, if you really want to sleep together, we can sleep in the same bed, but we have to take all the pillows and build a wall <laughs> and you're not allowed to come over on my side of the bed. So he was like really excited about this. And he was also excited that when you build a wall out of pillows, it turns into a nest. So the wall turned into a nest and he slept in his nest and I slept in my nest. And then about one in the morning, <clears throat> I could feel like a foot. <laughs> and then at two, I think I felt an elbow. And then next thing I know, he's like in my nest and basically all over me. And um, 
Now today I have a fever. <laughs> <laughs> it also reminds me of, have you ever had the experience where um, if your kid um, throws up and immediately you put out your hands? I wouldn't do that for anybody in this room. <laughs> but that's what I mean about non-dual activity. You don't even think about it. There's no separate use saying, oh, should I do this or not? You just immediately take action. If your body is yelling at you, you listen. Maybe at this time of year, when there are a lot of social events, and your emotional system is telling you to have some time alone, maybe you need to listen. I always ask myself when I have to go to a social event, I know that my mind can go, but can my skin go? The other thing I like about this story is that when Ling Zhao throws herself to the ground, it's funny. It's a comedy. And being a bodhisattva is like this, because if we're training to work with our reactivity, if we're learning practices to be able to be with our somatic experience without separating from ourselves, if those are the key tools that we're learning, then <clears throat> a bodhisattva realizes that there is no path. The path is just to keep training because you don't know how you're going to be called to serve. And this motivates a bodhisattva to get up in the morning because it's exciting. How am I going to serve? I have no idea. And I have no idea what to do. Just like if you have a friend who's in the hospital and you get the phone call to come straight to the hospital, you'll be a little nervous because you might know, not know what to do when you get there or what to say. We've all been through experiences like that. But you just show up. You show up and you see what's needed. And sometimes this is important to underline in the yoga community. Because a lot of times in the yoga community there are situations where someone in your circle of friends is having a hard time and you go to support them, and then you tell another friend, oh, so-and-so is having a really hard time, they're struggling with an addiction again, or what have you, and immediately the person will say, well, just make sure you're taking care of yourself. How are you taking care of yourself? It's like this mythology that self-care has to come first. But our practice, if we're looking through a bodhisattva lens, is we care not self-care. Anyways, who is this self? If you have a lover who's having a really hard time and your relationship is feeling unstable and you just go to help yourself and that relationship keeps getting more and more unstable, then you're going to be more and more stressed. No amount of time at Loyley is going to help you <laughs> recover your stability. When someone that we depend on when we're young uh, can't tolerate uh, some aspect of who we are, maybe our sexuality, 
or maybe our ambition or uh, our abilities, um, how our bodies move or our body type. We split off parts of ourselves so we can main con maintain contact with that person. Think about the early caregiving environment, right? You'll compartmentalize whatever you need to in order to maintain contact, maintain contact with a primary caregiver. And most of that compartmentalization is not conscious. It happens unconsciously. And then we build a new life, which is actually a half-life, around this half-self that we have now. And I want to underline, this happens unconsciously. It's not like you choose to do this. And then what often happens is we end up not feeling real anymore, feeling empty. And sometimes it's not one thing we cut off, but just an emotion. And one of the things we know about numbing emotions is that when you try and numb the negative emotions, you also end up numbing the positive emotions because numbing is just numbing. So if you try and dull down your anger, you will also dull down your joy. And the problem with cutting off our emotions is that we then lose connections with the way, or we lose our understanding, or we lose our, um, we kind of lose the thread that connects us with the world. Because we connect with the world emotionally. So for example, if you can't feel the spectrum of trust, you might make some uh, really big relational errors in adulthood. If you can't feel fear appropriately, you also might make some poor decisions. If you can't feel danger appropriately, you might end up in some bad situations too. Why am I bringing up all this? What does this have to do with the bodhisattva path? Well, our brains and our bodies are relational. They're relational. Spend some time by yourself, and you'll see very quickly that everything you think about is all relational. Everything. The way you interact is relational. How your brain was structured is relational. And so what that means is if we're going to talk about awakening, if we're going to talk about yoga, if we're going to talk about a practice of being um, alive and flourishing, we have to talk about it in terms of relationship. Relationship is at the center of yoga practice. It's at the center of yoga practice. And deep down, we all crave a haven where uh, love is alive. It's what we all want, whether it's with a lover or in friendship or in community, a place that's safe to heal old wounds, a place where we can put our bodies back together again, 
or a place just to start to get to know this body that you have that's aging. Because I don't know if you've noticed this, but your body is not turning out the way that you plan. <laughs> so from the perspective of a bodhisattva practice, somebody who advertises their um, self-sufficiency is likely masking an inner loneliness. We need each other. We're made up of each other. There's no way out of that. So part of our bodhisattva practice is we need to invest in love relationships. We need to invest in loving relationships. I think even up in Canada, where I was two weeks ago, we were all completely shocked by the election. For the first day, I had no idea how to even process it. I'm so attached to my worldview. There was no way for Donald Trump to even get in to the worldview. And I could see my grasping to, oh, it's supposed to, it was supposed to go this way. It, was supposed to go, it wasn't supposed to go this way. So now, especially, there are going to be many people and many groups that really need our support. People of color, Latinos, Jews, <coughs> Muslims. We need to support a lot of people who are losing support. And so all of us, I think, have to take some responsibility for where we've been born in this lifetime. Mm -hmm. Our ability, our health, our access to education, our access to power, or even our ability to be in a room like this and have healing practices like that we can drop into yoga classes is an incredible privilege, an amazing privilege. So how can we care for those in need? People are falling down, and they're going to fall down, and we have to fall down with them too. How are we going to care for those in need? This is not an abstract thing, like looking out the window at people who are in need. People shouldn't be afraid to be queer. People shouldn't be afraid to be Muslim. So as spiritual practitioners, we have something real to offer. We have something real to offer. First, we know, because we have practices, how to stabilize our boat, our ship, our canoe. We can't control the waters but we know how to stabilize our ship. Eating right, mindfulness of breathing, knowing when to be with others, knowing when not to be with others. 
knowing how to listen, and really knowing what it's like when we feel our hearts open, and also really knowing what it's like when we feel ourselves shutting down. <clears throat> you know, in Zen practice, there is um, something we do called Enso practice, which is you take a brush on a piece of paper with ink on it, and you put it on the paper, one move, and then you inhale, go up, and exhale around, making a large circle called an Enso. And I've always found it interesting when you look at ENSOs, you can never quite get the circle closed. Every time you see an ENSO, you can see the mark where the circle started and you can see where it's finished. And I think our healing is like that. All of us have come to practice because we have different kinds of woundedness. And if you keep sticking with practice, both movement practice, stillness practice, and also relational practice, you will start to see your own woundedness. And the interesting thing about the scars or the sangskaras that we call a woundedness is that they're never completely healed. I think this is a kind of absurd fantasy that all of our wounds eventually will be healed and will be free from them. In fact, it's the fact that the circle can't be closed, that the wound can't actually be fully healed, that connects you with other people. Right? You're working through a wound, and that wound becomes a bridge and becomes a gate through which you can connect with other people. And I don't mean other people who have exactly the same wound. I just mean your ability to be connected to your own pain allows you to fall down and connect with the pain of other people. And sometimes if you have the internal fantasy that you have to heal your wound 100% before you can help others, then you end up putting an expectation on other people that they need to get over their addiction or their pain 100% before you can accept them. And that's just suffering for everybody, isn't it? That's not falling down with somebody. I chose this story because it's about falling down. It's not a story, when you think of it in an embodied way, that's kind of like heroic and up the mountain. Post-election, we need to do everything we can not to make things worse. If that's your motto, that would be a great takeaway from this evening. Bodhisattva practice is basically recognizing that we need to make a vow to help others so we don't make things worse. And some of you might think, that is setting the bar so low. But I encourage you just to try, just to try for one week just not to make anything worse. <laughs> Why did we all love Leonard Cohen so much? <clears throat> because Leonard Cohen uh, embodied the fact that it's okay to be in melancholy. And it's okay to be in despair. And it's okay when the melancholy and the despair completely take over, as they will from time to time. <clears throat>
And then in that despair, you start learning how to navigate a landscape. A landscape that's different than the one our culture is obsessed with, which is consuming and producing and getting back to work as fast as possible. And with that energy of despair, which I don't know about you, but I have certainly felt after this election, you take that energy and then you do something with it. But you have to give it time. You have to feel that energy before you jump the gun and decide what you're gonna do with it. So we just keep offering our bodhisattva spirit no matter what. One day you make a vow and the vow is that sentient beings are numberless and we're gonna serve them. And then you spend your rest of your life trying to figure out what that vow means. Marriage is like that too, you know. You get married and you're so excited on the wedding day, you make all these vows and then you have to spend the rest of that marriage figuring out what on earth did we vow and what does it mean and how do I live this? And it's exactly the same with the bodhisattva vow. I'm practicing to serve other people. What could be more exciting? So, two points. One is, it's really important you have a practice. Practice is a refuge. It's a place to come home to. It's a real break. I don't mean practice as a place or a space to space out. I mean practice as a place to really know what it's like to let go of your effort, get calm, and get still. Practice as a space where you honestly see your levels of reactivity and you learn how not to identify with them and how to calm down. And yoga centers like this one that we're in here and Dharma centers and classes some of you hold in church basements or in your living rooms, these are really important cultural spaces right now because it's where we can hold a space against this tide that wants to shut down. Our bodhisattva practice. The second thing is that, so the first thing is practice is a refuge. And the second thing I want to underline is that practice then becomes a training in compassion. Our practice is a training in compassion. When you learn how to transform your reactivity, you are a completely different kind of friend. You are a totally different colleague at work. You are a different parent. And then we learn how to love people more deeply. Everyone, including your enemies and to appreciate that we don't know what we will do in the future.
you don't know how you're going to serve. When I was young, I was in, in the streets with placards and um, protest kind of guy. And really, really happy doing that work. There's nothing more thrilling than uh, being with a group so much larger than your individual body. Uh, now, as I've aged, if you can tell, um, my interest has focused more on mental health. Because the more that I do this work of sitting still and working with other people's hearts and minds, the more I see how invisible uh, mental health is as an issue. And it cuts across all class lines, too. And the reason why I'm sharing this is because I think it's important that you don't get stuck in an idea of how you are a bodhisattva. Because that wouldn't be non-dual activity. Right? So bodhisattva activity on Monday morning might be completely different than Monday afternoon. Right? Or maybe you've been a lawyer for 10 years doing environmental defense, and now you don't feel like that's the thing to do anymore. So you shift. You try something else. Maybe you've been a really dedicated parent doing bodhisattva practice, and now you feel like, oh, there's something else I want to do now. You don't stop being a parent, but maybe for some hours of the day your bodhisattva practice looks different. Do you get what I'm saying here? It's not like one thing. If you're listening and you're like, yeah, I'm a bodhisattva, you've totally missed it. <laughs> a bodhisattva, a bodhisattva is just somebody who's available, who's offering themselves. And this is the sad thing about holding a posture because of your woundedness that doesn't advertise either your availability or the fact that you need help, right? Like, if you don't allow other people to help you, then they can't practice generosity. So this is a terrible thing in a family because if you want the people in your family to learn generosity, then you need to allow yourself to be helped. You need to allow other people to fall down. So we need to advertise this in our posture so that we're available, we can give, and also we can receive. Mr. Pang and his daughter were selling bamboo baskets Coming down a hill towards the market, Mr. Peng stumbled and fell. His baskets went flying. And his daughter, Ling Zhao, immediately jumped to the ground. And startled, Mr. Peng said, what are you doing? And Ling Zhao said, I saw you fall, so I'm helping. So oh, thank you very much. <laughs>